0: This week on the show, we cover the FreeBSD Foundation October fundraising update, the advanced ZFS snapshots and all the cool things you can do with them, a full WireGuard setup with OpenBSD, MidnightBSD as a Linux alternative, FreeBSD audio, and why is that good, tuning power consumption on FreeBSD laptops, thoughts on spelling fixes by Warner Losch, and more in this week's episode of Now. BSD Now, episode 429, Advanced ZFS Snapshots, recorded on the 3rd of November 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoid. And you can support this show on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this week's episode, everyone. Our headlines have interesting bits for you that you should be aware of. The first one is about the FreeBSD Foundation's October 2021 fundraising update. So here it goes. Uh, Summer is typically a slow month for bringing in funding and last quarter was no exception, they write. I did, or it did, however, allow us some time to reflect on the work we are doing to improve FreeBSD and support the community and prepare for our fall fundraising campaign. Kicked off that campaign at the end of September. So far, the responses I'm hearing—that's probably from Deb Goodkin, I'm fairly sure, uh Foundation executive director. Uh, so she's hearing are extremely positive the feedback, and that they are hopeful that they will reach their fundraising goal this year. As of this writing, they've raised 180,000 towards their. goal for 2021. Why do we need so much money? Well, last year we decided to make more significant software contributions to FreeBSD. In order to do that, we had to grow our team. We developed a technology roadmap that you can uh, find separately linked from there. From input, we were receiving from individual and commercial users as well as market trends. Based on that roadmap, we identified positions we need to fill. And this year we hired three full-time software developers one full-time ARM kernel developer, and one project manager. Uh, We are also funding Wi-Fi work full-time and some other projects to help with FreeBSD on the desktop. We're doing this to help attract new users and contributors to the project. Our growth wasn't just in our technology team, but in our advocacy team too. We hired a marketing coordinator and technical writer to provide more educational and informational content. Throughout the fall of 2021 newsletter and the advocacy section of the upcoming FreeBSD project 2021 quarter three status report, you'll see all the work we did to promote FreeBSD, as well as provide community engagement, education opportunities, and informative content to help pave the path to get started with FreeBSD. Very nice. With these additional resources, we've been able to step in more often to implement and improve major features in FreeBSD, review patches and bug reports, implement bug fixes, and support security efforts. This helps keep FreeBSD the innovative, secure, and reliable operating system you rely on. It also shows you that you provide more documentation to assist new and seasoned FreeBSD contributors to get the information they need. And if you want to get more specific information on what your support allowed us to do, check out the upcoming project's quarter three status report with a bit more details in there. Within the report, you'll find individual reports from staff members like Mark, who has been working on improving security, Ed, who has developed our technology roadmap and worked on updating OpenSSH, Caustic, who worked on fixing longstanding compatibility issues with AMD64, D UEFI boot, Andy, who is adding support for new ARM architectures and K.O., K.O., yeah, sorry, oh. I can't get the name right, um, who is improving the desktop experience and who is advocating for FreeBSD and others. So in addition, you'll find reports from outside-funded projects like improved Wi-Fi from Kuren, uh WireGuard updates by John, RedZ expansion by Matt, and all added LLDB support by Moritz Systems. Uh, then you focus a bit more on specific areas of the fundraising campaign, what your money will... Uh, help fund, operating system improvements, for example, like providing staff to immediately respond to urgent problems and implement new features. Then there's security, providing engineering resources there to bolster the capacity and responsiveness of the security team, quality assurance to improve the uh, increasing testing coverage, continuous integration and automated testing with a full-time software engineer, new user experience, improving the process and documentation for getting new people involved with FreeBSD as well as training, supporting more FreeBSD training for undergraduates, graduates, and postgraduates. This is uh, one of the areas where we try to get more people involved. Uh, Face-to-face opportunities. Yes, we try to make this happen in still COVID uh, years, but uh, facilitating collaboration among members of the community and building connections throughout the industry to support a healthy and growing ecosystem. Uh, She's closing with, I know we say it's a lot, but we truly can't do it without you. So please consider making a donation to help the FreeBSD Foundation continue and increase the support for FreeBSD. Yeah, very worthwhile effort. Also check out the other foundations. They are also probably running the end of year fundraising campaigns. So consider donating to those as well. Next up, we have another nice article, in my opinion, from Clara Systems about the advanced ZFS snapshots.
1: Yeah, so this one takes a deeper dive into OpenZFS's really powerful snapshotting feature. Uh, it talks a bit about how to use holds. Uh, so you can place a hold on a snapshot with basically a lockout tag uh, that can prevent that snapshot from being destroyed by accident or by automation. Um, you know, I have automation set up that takes snapshots of data sets every 15 minutes and then only keeps the ones that are for uh, uneven hours uh, after four hours and, and grandfathering on down and down to keep fewer and fewer snapshots. Uh, but sometimes because I have a replication in progress or just for some reason or, you know, I've, uh, I've made a snapshot just before I deleted a whole bunch of data, mm. I can put a hold on that snapshot. So the automation won't get rid of that snapshot for me until I release the hold. And it can be really helpful to make sure your automation, you know, uh, a snapshot, a, one specific snapshot doesn't expire automatically or whatever on you. It can be quite helpful. Uh, so there's examples of how to do that, You know how to place the hold, how to see which holds are there, how to release the holds, and examples of it not uh, letting you destroy that snapshot and so on until uh, you release it and so on. Uh, then we talk about some of the more in-depth concepts like creating clones from snapshots and how to, you know, if you've cloned a data set and now you don't want the original, you, how you can promote the clone to be the original or the origin and then be able to get rid of the original now. Uh, and so on and how you basically are able to invert the chi- parent child relationship uh, between the the clone and the origin uh, so that you can get rid of the snapshots that you want to get rid of and it talks more about the promotions there and also a bit about how compression affects a lot of this uh, and how you know changing the uh, record size uh, it can affect how compression how much space uh, a compressed block actually uses And then it also talks about using permissions, how you can delegate permissions uh, to, say, create and destroy snapshots to a user, and then you maybe don't give them the ability to release a hold on a snapshot so that you can prevent the user from deleting certain snapshots if you want, Uh, but also how you would delegate uh, permissions because doing send and receives actually automatically replaces a hold on a data set so that you know, the snapshot you're replicating can't be deleted out from underneath you and so on. Oh yeah, good to have.
0: I like the examples because people can really follow them and try them out on their own systems. Very good. And then we have in our news roundup this week, the full WireGuard setup with OpenBSD by Celine on dataswamp.org, I think it is. Yeah. Uh, introduction we want all our network traffic to go through a wireguard vpn tunnel automatically both wireguard client and server are running openbsd how to do that Uh, while she thought it was simple at first it soon became clear that the default part of the problem was not easy to solve fortunately there are solutions and this guide should work from openbsd 6.9 so she links uh, three pages, the pfconf man page about NAT, WireGuard interfaces man page, and the ifconfig man page as well as, or in there, the WireGuard section. Okay, so the setup. Uh, For this setup, she assumes we have a server running OpenBSD with a public IP address, 1234 for example, and an OpenBSD computer with internet connectivity, as one does. Uh, Because we want to use the WireGuard tunnel as the default route, we can't define a default route through WireGuard as this, uh, that would prevent our interface to reach the WireGuard endpoint to make the tunnel working. We could play with the routing table by deleting the default route found on the interface, create a new route to reach the WireGuard server, and then create a default route through WireGuard, but the whole process is fragile and there is no right place to trigger a script doing this. Instead, we can assign the network interface used to access the internet to the R domain one, configure WireGuard to reach its remote peer through R domain one, and create a default route through WireGuard under R domain zero. She has a little uh, ASCII art uh, depiction of the network so you can make uh, heads and tails where, which IP address is and what connections there are. Uh, Quick explanation about R domain. They are different routing tables. Default is R-Domain 0, but we can create new routing tables and run commands using a specific routing table with Route-T1 capital exec ping and then some website to make a ping through to R-Domain 1. Oh yeah, okay. Then the configuration uh, in order, create the WireGuard interface on your computer to get its public key, then create the WireGuard interface on the server to get its public key. Third, configure the PF to enable the NAT and enable IP forwarding. Fourth, con- uh, reconfigure computer's WireGuard tunnel using the server's public key. Fifth, time to test the tunnel. And sixth, make it default route. Seven, optional celebrate uh, our wireguard server will accept connections to address 1234 on udp port 4433 and uses the network a specific mask for the vpn the server ip on wireguard ah, yes, that's tying into the diagram she posted earlier and this will be our future default route then she talks about changes to be made on the computer so a couple of uh very straightforward setups setting up open ssl to create a private key and so on and then on the server part you set up the wireguard section also creating a key there and uh, then the firewall bits are basically a change to your pfconf uh, to add a pass out quick on egress from wireguard zero call network to any not to egress reload the pfconf and uh, she has a note there. If you block all incoming traffic by default, you need to open UDP port 4433. You will also need to either skip the firewall on WG0 or configure PF to open what you need. This is beyond the scope of this guide. And uh, yeah, all on your own network. You, you need to make your own adjustments. Mm-hmm. IP forwarding. We need to enable IP forwarding because we will pass packets from an interface to another. This is done with uh, the uh, that inet ip forwarding equals one sysctl as a root to make that persistence add that to your sysctl conf and you don't have to do it each time okay so now the server should be ready on your computer the client she has also the instructions how to add the or create the default route and then there's a section on handling the dns because uh, you may use a name server in the resolve.conf that was provided by your local network. It's not reachable anymore. She highly recommends to use unwind in every case, anyway, to have a local resolver or modify the resolve conf to use a public one. Unwind can be enabled with rcctl enable unwind and also starting this way. Uh, then from OpenBSD 7.0, you should have resolve D running by default. That will rewrite the resolve conf. If unwind is started, otherwise you need to write uh, nameserver 127.0.0.1 in resolveconf The section about bypass VPN. If you need for some reason to run a program and not route its traffic through the VPN, that's also possible. The following command will run Firefox using the routing table 1. So that's route dash capital T 1 and then exec Firefox. Uh, WireGuard behind a NAT. If you are behind a NAT network, you may need to use the keep-alive option on your WireGuard tunnel to keep it working. You just add the WGPKA20 to enable keep-alive packet every second in the etchostname.wg0. And she provides an example for that as well. And concludes with, WireGuard is easy to deploy, but making it a default network interface adds more complexity. This is usually simple for protocols like OpenVPN, because the OpenVPN daemon can automatically do the magic to rewrite the routes and it doesn't do it very well and won't prevent non-VPN access until the VPN is connected. Well, great. Even more uh, people will probably now be secure following this how-to. Then next, uh, we have MidnightBSD on a Linux alternative or as a Linux alternative.
1: Yeah. So this is over at makeuseof.com. Uh, it's basically a review. And they say, uh, the BSD community is making notable progress in bringing new OSs to the table. Check out MidnightBSD, a suitable alternative to just a, a plain Linux desktop. While desktop Linux has a dedicated following, most people think of BSD family as better for servers, if they think of BSD at all. Uh, Midnight BSD is a spin of FreeBSD attempting to create a BSD system uh, for a desktop. So Midnight BSD is an operating system based on FreeBSD with modifications that make it suitable as an out-of-the-box desktop. It was founded by Lucas Holt and named in memory of his cat, a black uh, Turkish angora named midnight as many cat owners have discovered to their delight or consternation midnight has a habit of uh hitting on holds or sitting on Holt's computer at midnight constantly uh or yeah constantly shut down uh, one of them or the other <laughs> anyway the previously project has developed a reliable server operating system but often usability and performance on the desktop were overlooked uh scheduling allocation of resources security settings and the other defaults were just not tuned for a desktop uh so looking at MidnightBSD, it's an XFCE desktop, Uh, previously had used WindowMaker and GNUstep, uh, which provided a more macOS-like feeling. But it has its own package manager called mPorts, that's discussed in more detail below, and it comes with DoAs as as a privilege manager. Uh, So it walks through the install and getting a desktop up and a bit about how its package management is special. As with the other BSDs, uh, MidnightBSD uses a port system uh, to manage packages. And they call theirs mPorts. It's derived from the FreeBSD port system with, uh, which compiles programs from source, uh, but MidnightBSD installs the Clang compiler, which many FreeBSD systems already use because it's a more permissive license. And it talks about how mPorts work, and then it also talks about GhostBSD, which is a slightly different version that can also run. Uh, and then it talks about, you know, is MidnightBSD for you? So it says attempts to be user-friendly BSD operating system, uh, and it talks about Installation and how that's uh, text based, what their experience was trying it out. And then they say, despite uh, some of the quibbles, Midnight BSD, it's nice to see the BSD community making an effort to have a a desk out of the box desktop system. And maybe uh, it'll get more critical mass over time. Oh,
0: yeah. Hopefully uh, it gets its user base uh, and
1: more development
0: happening. Why not? Next up, we have an article about FreeBSD audio uh, by Mika. So Mikas uh, writes that he started using FreeBSD in 2016 as a dual boot with Linux. The reason was that at the time, Linux provided no support for real-time threads and preemptive scheduling, but did provide a wider choice of audio applications. Today, as the FreeBSD audio ecosystem improved a lot, uh, he's happy a single OS, u- or a happy single OS user. You may ask yourself, why is being fast so important to audio? And the question is, it the oh, no, not the question. The answer is, of course, uh, it isn't most of the time. To be more precise, from a listener's perspective, the uh, same. it's the same as if sound is late five seconds or one second, as long as the period of being late is the same for every sample of up to a few microseconds. So if samples have variable latencies, the original sound will be distorted by samples swinging around their precise time. So for playback, it's not important to be fast, It's important to be right on time for every sample to avoid distortions caused by samples being too early or too late, which is commonly called the jitter. On the other hand, a musician playing through a FreeBSD machine is interested in both speed of processing and precision. uh, We need to have in mind that all samples first have to be processed by hardware, then comes the driver, and in the end we have the space programs. Ah, the end-user space programs, not just space programs. When every device's output is late compared to input, that is called latency. If latency is 5 milliseconds and lower, it is impossible for most people to tell there's any latency at all. Latency is important to musicians because of the feedback. Hearing a sound that has 50 milliseconds latency can confuse the musician to a point where they cannot play anymore. So FreeBSD at the time had really nice real-time support but not so nice audio ecosystem and almost non-existing MIDI one. You must be wondering why I switched to something half-baked when Linux at the same time had awesome uh, audio and my day support. It's those jitters. Although I had every program I could wish for on Linux, FreeBSD simply didn't have jitters and it matters a lot. Sometimes jitters would cause sudden and loud pops and that made studio recording more challenging. So having FreeBSD working perfectly, but unfortunately with not so much app support was better for me than having all the apps I want and not uh, or no way of being sure the sound will be recorded properly. So today we have a different situation thanks to Hans-Peter Salaski who wrote Cues. Virtual underscore OSS, the USB stack and uh, SNDU audio, and Yuri who ported around 1,500 applications to FreeBSD. That's a lot, uh, among which is a huge number of audio MIDI apps. To be honest, virtual OSS existed in 2016, but it wasn't as versatile and stable as today. The reason why anyone would want virtual OSS is to make audio routing easy by having a virtual sound card, which knows how to route the signal, while user space applications are unaware of it, and they just use FreeBSD's sound API. There are numerous other features in virtual OSS that they... Uh, wait, I'm skipping a line here. Ah, here. There are numerous other features of virtual OSS that can come handy, like mixing, compressing, and EQ in user space, but audio routing and splitting and merging can uh, one card to many audio or many virtual ones. Uh, combining input and output from different devices is the most common use case, like having a Bluetooth headphone and USB microphone to virtual OSS is quiet more and more outside of recording studio and high-end sound setups. And there's more definitely in the article. Check it out, how you can configure your system to uh, provide this these features. These are not default settings. And I guess your audio listening quality on BSD will, or on FreeBSD in particular will be much improved.
1: Yeah. Now that uh, FreeBSD with Firefox and so on supports uh, conferencing apps so well a uh, very common ask for people is I need, you know, the sound to come out one device and the, the audio input to be this unrelated device. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes you have a headset like, like I'm using here where, you know, one device is providing the input and the output, but oftentimes, you know, you want the output to be this device and the input to be this other unrelated device. Uh, and the, the instructions provided here, uh, make it easy to do that. And yeah, uh, like, uh, Mecca was saying here, Gordon. um, you know, special thanks to the work of uh, Kaho and um, Hans-Peter Seleski to get so much of this in such a good shape. Yeah, especially. I mean, it's an operating system, and why not make it also work well for musicians? It's perfectly fine reason to use it. And uh, related to last week, uh, we covered a, a post about trying to get more battery life out of OpenBSD, and today we have one for FreeBSD. So, tuning power consumption on FreeBSD with Intel Speed Shift, uh, which applies to sixth gen and later uh, Intel CPUs. So, when running FreeBSD on a laptop with a uh, newer generation Intel CPU, um, you find that the uh, old uh, Intel Speed Step stuff has been replaced with Speed Shift. So, one thing that Intel has done with these more modern CPUs is include a technology called Speed Shift. While Windows and Linux may have configurations that automatically optimize this, FreeBSD's default speed shift configuration is more optimized for computers without a battery, meaning it attempts to balance between performance and power consumption, uh, not necessarily uh, for battery life. Fortunately, if you check out the underscore intel man page, it talks about a bunch of tunables you can set. So. Uh, in this example, you can see that there's uh tunable for each uh, thread on your CPU. In case you were wondering, the 100 is a value between 0 for best performance and 100 for best power savings. The default is 50 for each thread, and you can instead tune it to bias more towards one direction or the other. Oh, yeah, I see. And I talked about how to set it manually in uh, with Sysctl and a bunch of other ones, and basically how to uh, force more of the speed step stuff to happen uh quieter um, and also looks like you would be able to use this to have, you know, one core that isn't trying to save as much power so you can get the fast work done on that core, but to keep your other cores uh, from using up as much power.
0: Mm. Oh, that's good Good to know, or configure even less fan noises. Very good. Okay. Then we have some thoughts, or at least Warner has on his blog, on spelling fixes. So Warner's random hacking blog contains always interesting portions, and this time it's about uh, well spelling fixes. And he writes, "I've been looking at a number of FreeBSD pull requests lately. Many of them are spelling fixes. I'd like to offer some suggestions for people submitting them. The same advice applies to typo fixes and grammar corrections." Okay, here we go. The first one: keep number of changes small. The second: use separate commits per directory third is use descriptive commit messages the fourth set your email correctly and the fifth don't correct code yes uh that's also a mix up that often happens so he explains each of those a little bit uh keep number of changes small when submitting like this limit the number of changes to maybe 10 or 20 maximum more than about 15 changes becomes hard to review Every single change has to be verified for correctness, and having too many will make your pull requests more like to be overlooked. yeah because, oh, it's so much work, I'm not even looking at that. Then, use separate commits per directory. When submitting a number of changes, do one change per subdirectory. When subdirectories are nested, it's okay. For example, if you have changes to uh, bin/LS and bin/RM, do two commits. But if you have changes to both user.bin slash wpa slash wpa underscore priv and user bin wpa underscore cli, then it's okay to do those as one commit because they logically uh, belong together. Next, use descriptive commit messages. The commit message fix spelling is too generic to be sp- useful. If you're fixing just one word, a better commit message would be spell interrupt correctly. It also allows the reviewer to make sure that you are changing the right thing. And it also gives enough detail that people skimming the logs don't need to look at the diffs to know what changed. If you're fixing multiple sparing errors, then a generic message is more appropriate. Then set your email correctly. When you push your branch to GitHub, make sure that you set the email you want in the commit message. It saves a lot of time. If you're using GitHub's editor, make sure that your profile has this information set correctly. Also, people can reach back and Uh, ask questions this way. Next and last, don't correct the code. Don't make spelling corrections in code variables, defines, etc. These will likely be ignored. The risk from a comment or an error message being corrected is tiny, while code changes could be attempts to subtly change the system or introduce security impacting issues, through a supply chain attack, it's better to work with someone in the community to get these corrected than to correct them via a pull request.
1: And sometimes, you know, they're part of an API or something that just isn't allowed to change without breaking third-party code that uses this FreeBSD code.
0: Yeah, yeah. So these are de- general good uh, advice. I wonder if we should put this in the official um, developers' uh, guide or the um, what's it called, contributors' guide, some somehow
1: or maybe. Uh, specifically the readme that shows up in the root of the repository on GitHub. Yes, that's also a good
0: place because that's where people uh,
1: go and and see it directly. This week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Head over to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to start doing proper secure backups. So with Tarsnap, uh, you have an open source client that you use on your computer that you can compile from source so you know its provenance. Uh, It will then read the files you tell it to, segment and deduplicate them, compress that and then encrypt the result of that uh, and then before sending it to the cloud. Uh, This way it ensures that the data is always encrypted with a key that never left your machine and you can verify by looking at the source code that that key is never sent anywhere. Uh, And this means that you have the ability to ensure the data that's in the cloud can only be accessed with your key and that if you destroy that key the data that's in the cloud is useless and it's the only way to be sure that your backup can actually be destroyed you never know how many backups of backups the cloud might have. Even if Tarsnap isn't doing a backup of your backup um, or has destroyed it properly, it doesn't mean Amazon has. So encrypting your backup with a key you control is the only way to make sure you're, you have control over your data. Anyway, uh, you head over, you can check it out. It's pay-as-you-go, so you just put money in your account and use it till you run out so you can never get a surprise bill.
0: Okay, we've reached the feedback and questions section and people can always send us feedback and questions. We're always open for those. Uh, feedback at bsdnow.tv is the address to send those to. Anything that you find on the web that you find interesting that we should cover or show ideas, topics, stories, anything that is uh, maybe useful in a future episode. Here's one. Um, remember the Michael W. Lucas interview where a little bit of a teased the uh, Zpool boy story that I'm writing for the... Uh, FreeBSD journal that may, mostly contains, it's a story used, uh, constructed mostly from ZFS keywords. And uh, on the episode that I recorded with Tom, roughly three or four weeks ago, uh, someone provided feedback to that. And now uh, we get Ben's feedback to my feedback to Ben's question about the Zpool Boy story. So we have a bit of an inception here already, but uh, it's, an, it's a thread that's going on. So Ben writes to my answer, uh, Hi, Benedict, thanks for the reply. You're welcome. Yes, I'm very much looking forward to it. These sorts of fiction with substantial actual tech content scratch a certain type of itch for me. (laughs) Obviously, I enjoy Michael's fiction a lot. Yeah, same here. Uh, it's hard to say whether the marked up version or the other would be better. I can imagine pros and cons to each. Yes, we're still looking at at those. Um, I keep an eye out for it and definitely will let you know my reactions. Maybe it could turn into a series. Oh dear, I'm already in big trouble here. Um, but yeah, thanks for that feedback. I haven't seen the rendered piece yet. So it's still at the editors and they will probably send me an, an author copy to to approve or make last minute changes to it. Um, so once I see it, I'm fairly sure it will appear in the, uh, last issue for this year. So December, January, when this will come out, if all the other issues, uh, contents are, right, it'll
1: be the November, together. December issue, but it will come out very near the end of December. Yeah. So
0: at least when the days are coldest in the Northern hemisphere here, um, you need to read a bit of a summer story of sorts. So again it's it's more funny than uh, yeah taking with uh, taking it with a grain of salt there but i think people will recognize ah that's the keyword or that that's the keyword from there or this is the reference over here uh so yeah wait a little bit longer and you will have um the story not sure about the series if it if i find enough content and inspiration strikes then i'll be happy to write something up cool so thanks for this question and next up is hcddbz, I'm not sure if that's even pronounceable, uh, about old technical books.
1: Yep, yeah, they say, uh, all of you guys are great, and BSD Now is their go-to podcast every week. So thank you. Ooh. Since the 1980s, they've been reading books from Prentice Hall and O'Reilly's, and uh, they publish a good deal of the technical books. Everything from Basic Atari Basic, um, the C programming language, Unix system administration handbook, the Magic Garden Explained, TCP IP Illustrated, Programming Perl, and pretty much every other Perl book published by O'Reilly, The Sun Performance and Tuning Books, Panic System Crash Dump Analysis, Set in awk, Learning VI, uh, Land Times Guide to SQL, uh, The Design and Implementation of 4.4BSD, Essential System Administration, TCP IP Network Administration, The Design of the Unix Operating System, Unix in a Nutshell, and so on. Mm, that's quite a library
0: mm-hmm. and quite the knowledge in your head now after you've reading all those and many of those still are valid of sorts in like the, the, the groundwork that they explain and yeah uh, reading is also a, a thing that probably probably never gets old it's as much technology we get it's uh, reading of its own it's its own value I find at least okay so thanks for this feedback and then we have Jason with a jails question here comes Jason. A question for the show. Motivated to update the networking for my jails since FreeBSD 13.0 slash 32 net masks do not work the way they do in earlier releases. Uh, they provide, or well, he provides a bug uh, number to us. If the old way of doing it was rc.conf, oh, uh, I have if, con- or if config cc0 equals inet the IP address slash 27 uh, and then if config cc0 alias 0, inet another address slash 32 and then in jail.com if you do the ip.4 address on uh yeah yeah so ah, this
1: mm, isn't actually a change in freebsd13 it's a change in the way they're doing their jails yeah uh so in before what they were doing was uh they have their network set up and they'd have a slash 27 on their first ip address and then a slash 32 on the second ip address and then a regular non-vnet jail would borrow that IP address from the host and that would work fine because it had access to the routing table, uh, which would default route out via the slash 27, uh, which, you know, when you have a slash 32, it can't find the default gateway. Uh, So then when they switched to using VNet jails, they're creating a bridge and adding that E pair into it. And so inside the jail, when they have one uh, dot one forty one slash 32, then it has no route to reach the default gateway, which I'm guessing is 139 or something. So they had to use the same slash 27. Uh, so yeah, it's mostly, if you have multiple IP addresses in the same subnet, FreeBSD used to require that the additional addresses were slash 32s. It doesn't require that anymore. They can all be slash 27 or whatever the correct subnet mask is. But back in FreeBSD 4 and 5 and so on, uh, you could only have one address per subnet that was the had the real subnet mask and the rest had to be slash 32 but once you create a vnet that's a separate network stack and so if your only address is a slash 32 it had no way to find the default gateway so that's why that's happening uh it's not actually a change between 12 and 13 it's a change between uh a vnet jail where you're having a completely separate network stack and a plain jail where you're sharing the host network stack
0: oh yeah mm-hmm. that's why
1: Um, For the first instance there, if you don't want to manually add the 141 IP to your rc.conf, if in your jail.conf you put cc0 pipe 129.174.1 IP address slash 32, uh, the jail will bind it as an alias to that interface when the jail starts and unbind it when the jail stops, uh, which can be convenient uh, and also can help avoid the confusion of if SSHD is running on both the host and the jail, and then you stop the jail, someone tries to SSH to the jail, it's down, and so it falls through and connects to the host, and then you get the SSH key warning, versus if you actually unbind the IP, then they'll just get, you know, the jail's not running, so the IP's not reachable. Mm. But yeah, that's not actually a behavior change in FreeBSD, that's uh, just that. Networking works differently when you use VNet. Yeah, that's the particularities of those.
0: Uh, but good to know this, and uh, hopefully that gets you networking in your jails. Cool, very nice. Um, that is, do we have something left? Ah, we should mention that we are doing our uh, usual end of year. It's not usual, but we try to make this uh, a fun episode. At the end of the year, uh, we're trying to do our audience interviewing us, our uh, team behind BSD now, and so uh, you can send questions that you. Want us to answer to feedback at bsdnow.tv, like host interviews or something as the subject, so that we can distinguish it. And when we yeah, have, and we're actually enough,
1: planning to have everybody. So that would be, yeah, uh, JT and TJ and me and Benedict. Uh, and with all of us together and answering your questions to us, uh, we can you know play off each other or whatever. Um, and it should be fun. You know, We don't know what you want to know about us, so send us emails telling us what questions you would like us to answer.
0: Yeah, and if you have enough of those, then it's a full episode.
1: Yeah, because I think the last time we interviewed Tom on BSD Now was 2017 or something. Yeah. Uh, And it was me and Tom outside in the rain at FOSDA. (laughs) It's been Uh, a while since then, yeah. That was the day I met Tom. That was the first time I'd met Tom. Mm. Uh, he wasn't even a FreeBSD committer yet; he was just working on cool TCP/IP stuff for FreeBSD. Uh, and so I dragged him outside and stuck a Zoom in his face and, and uh, <laughs> talked to him and me. asked him a bunch of questions. <laughs> uh, and since then, Tom and I've uh, got to know each other better.
0: Yeah, and I mean, we've come a long way, and uh, things have changed here and there. So maybe we're working on interesting new things, new projects. Uh, new plans maybe. So that's probably what we can answer there. I mean, you can always ask us, yes, what's your shoe size or what did you have for breakfast? Anything you like. We reserve the right to remove questions that are inappropriate, uh, but I'm fairly sure people want to have a genuine We've never gotten to- any of those. You do
1: But I'm encouraging people to do that.
0: But. Yeah. <laughs> so we will be surprised and uh, hopefully we'll find a nice episode to put this in.
1: Thank you for
0: this week's uh, listen. And uh, again, we should mention uh, one more time our Patreon, patreon.com slash BSD now. If you want to support the show, we have various levels there. And if you are interested in this kind of thing, like having no ads on this episode or any others, then you can uh, chip in.
1: Yeah. So right now the perk we have for uh, $5 and above is that you get an RSS feed of the episodes with the ads edited out but we are also interested in your ideas for what other perks might be interesting
0: yeah because it's the show still is for you and it will be free for everyone it's just for people who want to have some extra involvement or some extra things around the show Um, if people are interested in many of these and a lot of people join that then why not make those right so it's you the audience that we're doing this for